the narrative of Joseph as I examined it this week, and we land on a really interesting part of the narrative, it's clear to see that it's a struggle for life and death. You have the dream that has been in doubt the entire time, humanly speaking, but never in doubt, divinely speaking, but there's a struggle to keep the dream alive that Joseph would rule. There's a struggle within the family. Joseph has been struggling with life and death. He's been in peril during the entire narrative. And from a 30,000-foot level, it's a struggle to make sure that Jesus Christ will come into the world through the saving of Israel so that he could reign as king, which is what Christmas is all about. But you and I are also in a struggle for life and death. And just as Joseph's family only had one place to go for food, so we only have one place to go to receive eternal life, to receive eternal refreshment, the living water, and that is through Jesus. So today the narrative challenges us, where are we going to go to get life? Are we willing to step out in courage in order to receive life? Because it literally, and it's not an, it's not an overstatement to say, it's a matter of life and death. And so I want you to take your Bibles and we're going to pick up where this narrative leaves off in Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. And that's page number 35 if you want to grab that Bible on the seat back in front of you. It's also on our Ridgewood app if you want to download that app. You can just follow along. The sermon study guide is in there. You can type in your notes. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. The narrative sets itself up now. We're changing directions in the narrative. And this is an exciting part of the narrative, but there's a tremendous amount of drama that happens here. But the, the typology or the prefiguring of Jesus is thick and it's rich and it calls us to a decision point in our own lives. What will we do? Will we go to receive life? And so we begin in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. They're in a battle for their very lives, because famine has gripped the land. And the narrative now is changing direction. We've been following the exaltation of Joseph so that he could rule as the dream said he would. But the drama now shifts back into the family. This is where the real tussle is now going to take place. Will the family step out in faith and receive living water, receive nourishment? Or will they, out of fear, step back and fail to receive what they need. Because here's what's happened now in the narrative. And here's the first point. Joseph held power over life and death. And so how do you like this? We started the narrative with a 17-year-old shepherd boy who had a dream. A shepherd boy that was targeted, hated, 
a victim of jealousy. And now he's the one that holds the power over life and death. Because this is the dream. This is what the dream said it would happen. And the dream came in two parts. Remember, the first part of the dream was agricultural. Fits the famine that has gripped the land. But the second part of the dream was celestial, which in that culture in the Near East would have been a sign of truth. They would have said, wow, this is really going to happen. And now it is. Let's just look back and remember the dream for a moment. Take a look here at Genesis 37, 5 through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves. And that's just grain, corn stalks in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. That's the agricultural part. Now to the celestial part. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So that's the dream. Jacob, the father, he's smart. And he didn't immediately dismiss the dream outright. He ridiculed him for sure, but he kept the saying in mind. And I wonder what he's thinking now as the famine has arrived and he's sending his sons to bow before this administrator in Egypt. So back to chapter 42 now. He'd heard that the grain, the corn, was available in Egypt. And I love this line in chapter 42, verse 1. Why do you look at one another? In other words, why are you staring at each other? Go get the food. Because Jacob knew the urgency of the matter. He understood that they needed to go to this spot to get the grain. Because the famine was so severe. So they set out on their journey. But who's missing? Benjamin. The youngest of all the brothers didn't go, and that's going to be a key part in the journey. Verses 3 through 5 document the fact that the brothers needed food to escape famine. They traveled 50 miles on foot to find this administrator, this man in Egypt that was doling out the food. And they approached him with incredible fear. And guess who this person is? It's the brother. They didn't know this yet. 
But what they did know is they needed food or they were going to die. The the struggle between life and death was very real. And so they're on this journey and they're going to stand before the man who has all of the power because he has all of the food. And there's no other place to get it. They could have gone a different direction. They wouldn't have been fed. They had to go here. They had to go to Egypt. They had to find this man because in the ancient Near East, Grain was the foundation for everything. If you didn't have it, you didn't eat. And so verse 6 highlights the extent of Joseph's power at this point in the narrative. First half of 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And look at the reaction of the brothers when they meet him in the second half of verse 6. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. So that sounded all like the dream. So here's the reason the dream is still alive. It's not Joseph's dream. It's God's dream. It is God's dream to save us from our sin. It is God's methodology for the Father to send his son Jesus into the world. But there had to be an Israel. And Israel needed to be saved. So this is God's dream. And now they come before their brother and they are trembling with fear. They are in front of absolute power. He held their lives in his hand. It's a drama that it's hard to even put ourselves into because it's so severe and so amazing. Some of you have read the book, you've seen the movies of the Hunger Games, and you know how this whole plot plays out. You have this fictional country named Pan Am, and you have 12 districts, and every year part entertainment and part retribution for a rebellion, two representatives of each district came and they played this game in front of this huge television audience. And the plot line was simple. You had to kill everybody else to survive. The last one standing wins. The drama was thick because it was literally life and death. That's what it was like here. Life and death. The tables had completely turned. The same group of people that had tried to stop the dream, to kill the dream, were now being saved by the dream. And this is how God works. You see, God doesn't answer to any man. God's dream will last forever because his son, Jesus Christ, will last forever. When the father sent his son, he became a life giver. And here's again where the parallels are so rich between Joseph and Jesus. If we want to go to the positive now, he held life in his hands and he was a life giver. Joseph was there to give Life. He had been so wise regarding storing grain in good times that the Bible says that it was impossible to count. If you look back at Genesis 41, verse 49, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And so you have the sole distributorship, no franchises. 
Joseph has all the grain. You see, Joseph believed the dream. And so when it came time for the seven years of plenty, he gathered all of the grain. And now he's the one who decides who gets the grain. And this motif is really interesting because it's all about famine and then nourishment. It's all about not having the food and going to get the food. And so in our lives, it's very much the same. It's like the desert we live in, in a world that is broken, in the longings we have, and the desperate need for salvation from our sin. And there's only one place to go, and the Bible's clear on that. And His name is Jesus, and He provides living water. If we look at Scripture on this, when He was talking to this Samaritan woman in John 4, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You come to this water, you can drink it, Fine, you're going to come back tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. You come to me, and you'll be satisfied for all eternity. And then, if we look at what he was talking about in John 7, he's introducing the Holy Spirit, and here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me has, the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so you have this idea of desert, and then the Bible is full of refreshment, renewal, transformation. But it comes in one place, and his name is Jesus. Do you see this rich typology? One place to go for food, it's Joseph. One place to go to be saved, and it's Jesus. And so it's thick here, and it's a timeless truth. And in Hosea, we see God talking to Israel, but we can also insert ourselves into this part of the story. We see that God leads back to himself with tenderness and mercy. Look at the verse. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Echor a door of hope. So what does that exactly mean to us? It means that God sometimes lures us into a terrible desert time in order to speak tenderly to us, to teach us, to hone us, to refine us, but he always gives us hope. And our hope is Jesus. And we spend so little time on our hope. We spend so little time getting to know Jesus who is the one who is waiting with water to refresh us forever, but we're, tr- we're out there trying to find life our own way. But Jesus is calling us to himself and saying, will you please come? I have what you need. I have what you need. What's, what's your desert that you're in right now? What are you struggling with? What are the things that have caused you to walk into this dark place or this this lonely place where God is beginning to speak to you tenderly? Is it a boss that is relentless and you can't stand working and there's never any encouragement? Is it a job that you hate? You get up in the morning and you go, I, I can't go one more 
One more day to this place. God, where are you? I've been praying for years for a different job. Or maybe it's an unresponsive spouse or a spouse that doesn't believe and you've been praying and praying and praying and there's just nothing happening and you're in the desert. And, or maybe it's just that you can't feel God. And you know He's there and intellectually you've given yourself to Him, but there's just nothing happening. You may very well be in the desert by God's choice and He may be speaking tenderly to you. So that you can find living water. Or maybe it's that you've been waiting so long to to get married or find someone to pursue you, but it's just not happening. Or it's sickness. So much sickness. And sickness is a way that God calls us into the desert and helps us to understand more of who he is. Or aging does that. Taking care of aging parents. Doubt. Maybe, maybe you're in this place where you, you know all of this, you've learned all of this, but now you're in a place where you're going, I don't see it happening, I don't see the outworking of it, I don't believe it. And you're in the desert, and you're asking God, where is he? All along, what God is doing is he's saying, will you please come? Will you please just come to me? There are so many different deserts, but one place to find life. And his name is Jesus. And here Joseph prefigures him because he holds in his hand life and death. And he chooses to give life in the end to his brothers. And so now we flip the coin over to the other side of this typology. And we see that Jesus has the power to offer eternal life. And this is where you see it all breaks down in a, in a relativistic society where we think that there are many ways to find salvation if we believe that the joseph story is literal and if we believe that joseph really lived and if we believe that this was a typology of jesus then it's very clear there is one road and it's also very clear that jesus has the authority to offer eternal life because the father has bestowed on him that authority to rule over the entire universe And so he has the authority to say, I have life. You have to come here to get it, but I'm offering it because I've already paid for your sin on the cross. He's been bestowed the authority over the entire universe, all the power, all beings, all things, all entities answer to Jesus. Satan answers to Jesus. Angels answer to Jesus. One day we will bow before Jesus because he's the king. And so don't be afraid of the powers of darkness. They answer to Jesus. They bow before the will of Jesus. When Jesus came to cast out demons, they shuddered at his name because he is the king. And they knew it. Don't be afraid. Be aware. Fight the war. Don't be afraid. And don't give up. Last week we focused on this idea to to bow down to Jesus because when when Joseph was exalted, he, he was put before the people of Egypt, and and Pharaoh said, bow down before this person. And and we were shocked as we saw what God did with a Jewish shepherd boy now leading a pagan nation. The part of bowing down and part of submitting to the Lordship of Christ is receiving what he has to offer, the living water of eternal life. The living water of salvation and transformation and living a new kind of life. And Jesus was very clear that he has that kind of power. 
He said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. Those words are there for a reason. We're being assured that not for an instant, not for an instant, will we ever be separated from the love of God through Jesus Christ. If we follow Jesus, we will literally Never die. We will slip certainly out of this mortal body, but we will never die. And we think to ourselves, well, who has the authority to make that kind of claim? Well, Jesus does. And it's set up in John 8 so beautifully. He's talking to these Jewish leaders. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death And they were chiding him. And they said, who are you to make that kind of a claim? And then in John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, he's not just claiming eternality. He's claiming to be Israel's God. The I am. Before Abraham was, I was your God. And am your God. So I have the authority to make that claim. And so as we struggle with this battle between life and death, we see Joseph's family heading to, 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 to bow before this administrator that they don't know yet is their brother. But we do. And so we can look back on the story and we can see this parallel with Jesus. So we have to make a choice. Are we going to come to Jesus? Or are we going to lose ourselves forever? Because the truth of the matter is that if we do not accept the living water, if we do not receive it, then our soul will be eternally lost in a place called hell and conscious torment, separated from Jesus for all time. And here on earth, we will, our hearts will close. Our hearts will not be satisfied. We will live a life of fakery, darkness, and purposelessness. But Jesus is offering something completely different. So I want you this morning to take a step toward Jesus. Please take a courageous step that can save your life. Now earlier I mentioned that we are aware that Benjamin isn't on the trip. He's not going with his brothers to see this administrator. Why? Because Jacob is afraid. And so he's holding his son back. This is his new favorite son. And he thinks Joseph has already been killed, so he's not going to let anything happen to Benjamin. So he holds him back. And what happens is, is he deprives Joseph of the opportunity to see Benjamin, but he also deprives Benjamin of the opportunity to see Joseph and to reconcile with Joseph. Now, Jacob doesn't know yet who this administrator is, but this fear is going to cause all kinds of hiccups in the story. Jacob is afraid. Don't let fear stop you from walking to the place where you can find living water, where you can find spiritual food. Don't let fear get in the way. Satan is so good at inserting fear. Fear of... All kinds of things like having 
something that we want taken away from us. If we really submit to the Lordship of Jesus and, and, and just feed off of Him. Or fear of rejection. Fear of losing our identity in this mass of Christianity is a fear for a lot of people. And the fear of being called to live differently. What will that be like? Don't let fear... Don't let fear stop you from going to get living water. The Bible's very clear here that there is a fountain of nourishment, but you have to jump off the cliff to get it. And such is the Christian life. It's not accessible without faith. It's only accessible to a few that are willing to submit their lives to Jesus. And the Bible says the rest will go hungry, and it's a tragedy. But you don't have to be that person. You can be that person that jumps off the cliff. You can be that person that comes to a new life in Christ. And I struggle with those fears too. I self-protect all of the time. I have life experiences where I've gotten hurt. I've had things happen where there's a fear that it's going to happen again. And so what do I do? I... Put on a little bit of a wall. You can't really see it unless you really get to know me. But I'll, look, I'll say, come on, be my friend, and then I'll stop you where I think I need to stop you because I don't want to get hurt again. But what am I depriving myself of? I'm depriving myself of friendship and community. And I don't want you to be deprived of what you can have in Jesus. Now, as this narrative plays out in the rest of the chapter, here's what happens. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. In verse 9, Joseph accused them of being spies. And so they had to set up a thing. They wanted to go back, but there had to be one of them tied up for ransom. So they got back, and the person would be free. And it was Simeon. In verse 24, it tells us that he was chained. He was the deposit of their return. The brothers traveled back. And Joseph had inserted the silver that they paid for the grain in their, in their bags, and they were terrified because this is the administrator. And now they're terrified. He's going to think we stole from him because he had spoken roughly to them, and they were terrified of him. And then they gave that report to their father. And Jacob again refuses to send Benjamin because he's afraid. You see, there's... All these years that have taken place and still this raw emotion and this fear. But what we see is that Joseph has risen to the place where he can offer life. God has, God has made the dream come true. God has helped Joseph fulfill the dream so he now reigns. And what I'm calling you to do is the same thing that the brothers had to do. They had to courageously go before the throne and bow before Joseph in order to eat. And I'm asking you this morning to bow before Jesus so that you can be renewed and have eternal life. This isn't a decision for the faint of heart. This isn't a decision that if you decide to follow Christ, you're going to get a new car. You can get your mortgage all paid off. And everything's going to go swimmingly well in your life. What I'm calling you to is discipleship. I'm calling you 
to be a follower of Christ, which isn't a popular thing in our culture, if you haven't noticed. But what's there, what is so rich, what is worth the pain, is the living water that Jesus has ready for you. Some of you here have been going to church your whole lives. You know the Bible backwards and forward, but you forget sometimes that there's living water there waiting for you that's beyond just learning and it's beyond just acting out. It's about love. It's about a relationship. I'm calling you to that relationship this morning. And so here's the clear choice in this struggle between life and death. You go to Jesus and you're fed, transformed, saved. Or you decide to do it on your own and you die. That's the choice. So I'm calling you to make the right choice this morning. Because the dream continues. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is reigning. Jesus Christ will reign forever. And he's offering you a chance to reign with him in his kingdom. So put away all your cell phones and your, and your Bibles, pens and pencils. And I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. Because this is an important choice. So I want you to think about this. Here's what I want you to think about while your eyes are closed. Do I believe, first of all, that Jesus is the source of living water? It's a fundamental question. Do I really believe what the text has just said or what Paul has just said? Think about that for a minute. If you do believe that Jesus is the source of living water, then I want you to think for a moment, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to... Go there for the first time and, and just say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I want to follow you so that you can have that living water. And if you've been a believer a long time, are you going to say, I will do anything that you want because I want to be fed by this living water? Think about that for a minute. And if this morning, if you're hesitating, if, there, if there's something blocking this, this ability to go to Jesus and just open your heart up to him, why don't you take a minute and just kind of analyze, think, and allow yourself to maybe come to grips with what the fear is or what the block is that's keeping you from coming to Jesus. Just take a moment and do that. Jesus, I just pray that you would call. Call people to yourself right now. We fight an internal battle that is never ending. We fight an internal battle that will only end the day you come and defeat Satan. So now we are in the midst of that war. But God, will you help us to understand that you are the power of the universe? You're the administrator. You're the one who has the food. 
You're the one that can give us life. And you're pleased to give us life. You're pleased to refresh us in the desert. God, I pray that each of us will grapple with this question and these questions as we go through our week so that we will not, out of fear, refuse to have an encounter with you. But through courage, we will continue to understand what it means to put our lives in your hands, to drink of living water. We pray this in your name. Amen.